Okay, last week we talked about distraction. Remember that? And what distraction does to keep us preoccupied and busy. Today I want to uh, talk about something a little bit differently. I want to talk about um, what happens when we are lured away by the culture. Cultural assimilation it's called. Where we become more like the culture than the culture becoming like us. You know, the the study of holiness is a very interesting study. For most of you, when we talk about holiness, you tend to think of your own heart, and that's good. But holiness actually in Scripture is a whole lot bigger than that. Hebrews 10 says, For by the will of God He has declared us holy once for all time. You see, holiness is more about your purpose in Christ, and your purpose is to bring glory to Him all the time in the world around you. So the fact that you've been declared holy, what that means is you are empowered to step into an unclean situation and bring righteousness, bring light into dark places. That's what it means. That's what Christ did with us. He stepped into a very dark world, our world, which we live in, and brought light. That's what holiness is all about. But what was supposed to happen is we step into the world and bring light to the world rather than the world shaping us assimilating us into its culture. As Christians, we have our own unique uh, culture, if you will. We call it the kingdom of Christ, where the world can see it by looking at us. And so the tendency, and especially in today's world, the church is, is floundering, as you're well aware. Um, it's becoming harder and harder to become Christians, to be a Christian in our world. And so if we're not careful, we get lured away. There's lots of things that lure us away. Uh, we'll talk about some of them. But you, I think you know what I mean. Just the idea is that we just get lured. We get, it's so gradual that we get pulled into places where we don't want to be. But we're not the first. I'm going to read a psalm to you. This is Psalm 73. It's out of Eugene Peterson's The Message. Psalm 73. No doubt about it. God is good. He's good to good people. He's good to the good-hearted. But I nearly missed it. I miss seeing His goodness. I was looking the other way. I was looking up to the people at the top, envying the wicked who have it made, who have nothing to worry about, not a care in the whole wide world. Pretentious with arrogance, they wear the latest fashions and violence. Pampered, overfed, decked out in silk bows of silliness. They jeer using words to kill. They bully their way with words. They're full of hot air. Loud mouths, disturbing the peace. People actually listen to them. Can you believe it? Like thirsty puppies, they lap up their own words. What's going on here? Is God out to lunch? Nobody's tending the store? The wicked get by with everything. They have made it piling up riches. I've been stupid to play by the rules. What has it gotten me? A long run of bad luck, that's what. A slap in the face every time I walk out the door. If I'd have given in and talked like this, I would have betrayed your children, your very own children. But still, when I tried to figure it out, all I got was a splitting headache until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I saw the whole picture, the true picture, the slippery road that you've put them on. With a final crash in a ditch of delusions, in the blink of an eye, disaster. A blind curve in the dark, a nightmare. 
wake up and rub your eyes, nothing. There's nothing to them. There never was. Cultural assimilation is when we, as a church, begin to look more like culture rather than culture looking like us. And it's something that we need to wrestle with as a church. We've wrestled with it in different ways. We'll continue to wrestle with it. But it's very important that we wrestle, especially in today's time frame, with what's happening around us. It is becoming harder to be Christians, isn't it? And the tendency in the church, when I look at it, is to either give in, capitulate to culture, and become just like them, or to back up and close the doors and just hide inside. Those are the kind of the two options that most churches are taking. And they're both wrong. This is a book called Renaissance by Oz Guinness. Renaissance. The power of the gospel, however dark the times. The, elder and the sta- uh, elders and staff read this last year. And um, so I know several of the small groups have read it. If you've not read it, it's a very insightful analysis into Western culture and what's happened in our culture and what he thinks we need to do as a church to kind of recapture the kingdom here. I'm not talking about recapturing the United States. I'm talking about bringing the kingdom out into the lives of people who don't know him. And I tell you more and more and more, I have coffees with people that have never even heard of Jesus Christ. If you had told me 30 years ago that would be the case, I'd have laughed at you, and yet it's reality in today's world. So this is a great little book. It's called Renaissance, if you've not read it. But in here, he talks about um, putting the Christian faith into practice, and he says we need to be willing to be scrutinized, Scrutinized by the non-Christians. By the way, that was Paul's belief in 1 Corinthians 14, 12, 13, 14. He thought the whole assumption behind his whole thing on the the, uh, gift of tongues and all of that was that we're going to have unbelievers in our midst. He assumed that in almost all of his epistles. We're going to have non-Christians, people that are curious. Churches are open. And if we're doing our job, they should be able to walk in and pay attention to what's happening here and look at us. And he says, if you do everything in a disorderly, confusing manner, they're going to think you're mad. Um, and then he talks about later on when he talks about being generous. He said, generosity is a statement of your faith. It's proof of how much your faith really is important to you. We've talked about that, that one of the most important things is that we live out our faith, right? He talks about Christianity in here from two ways that we should be willing to be scrutinized. One is related to the credibility of Christianity, and the other one is the plausibility. The credibility has to do with are the things that we say true? Are the statements true? Jesus Christ died on the cross. Is that a true statement? Yes, it is. So it has to be true. The next part of it is that it's just important for us to be scrutinized, and we should be willing to be scrutinized because we have nothing to hide, and that is plausibility. Is it plausible? And the way the world will know Christianity is plausible by looking at you in your lives, looking at me in my life. I drive my Jeep around town, as many of you know. I've been here long enough that there's a whole bunch of people that know me. I can no longer flip off people on the highway. (laughs) Just for the record, since I'm being recorded, not that I ever did. But (laughs) people pay attention. They drive by me. They honk their horns. They wave on the street. People, Nancy and I went out to Pug Ryan's, I don't know, a couple weeks ago just to get some downtime and talk. I think six people came up and said hi, and four of them I didn't even know. They have been visitors in our church. How plausible is it? The only way they can tell that is by looking at your faith. You've heard me use the example. Paul says, do all things without grumbling and complaining, Philippians 2. When you grumble and complain, 
you just told the world you don't really believe your own faith. That's what you just told them. When you let your marriage fail and you give up on your commitment, you just told the world you don't believe your own theology about marriage. By the way, uh, you don't have to marry. That's freedom. But if you do decide to marry, your marriage just became your very first statement of your faith. Think about Paul's words in Ephesians 5. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and his father shall cleave to his wife. They shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I'm speaking about Christ in the church. Your marriage, if you decide to marry, I'm not telling you should. That's your choice. That's a personal decision. But if you make that decision, your marriage becomes your first statement of your faith. Don't, don't wreck it. Don't mess it up. If they want to know if Christianity is plausible, look at the divorce rate. When we match the world, no, it's not plausible. That's their conclusion. It's not. And that's what he's talking about when he's saying, is it plausible? It's based on the consistency of its practitioners. That's us, you and me. But he goes on, he says, to the degree that we Christians are not practicing what we preach, we cannot expect our society to enjoy the fruits of the way of life of Jesus. How would they? And only, and I mean, and our Christian faith is likely to be implausible and off-putting to the wider world. Nobody wants to talk to somebody when it's all about talk and not about walk. Do we? If you take your children from the day they're born and you talk to them regularly about integrity, but you don't live a life of integrity, what's going to win out? Your life. Because your words are implausible. They don't buy it. That's why we say it is absolutely imperative that we learn to live our faith out and we create a culture where we can deal with issues when they arise, and we can ask each other, why are you doing it that way? Why'd you get angry? Why did I see you speeding down the road the other day? Why are you giving up on your marriage? Whatever the question is. Well, he goes on as he talks about bringing this, uh, the kingdom out into this world. Bringing the kingdom out into the world requires a long obedience over several generations. Our church is 105 years old. We've been around a long time. We are very careful, the staff and elders, to monitor what the county thinks about us. We talk to our leaders. We listen. We talk to visitors. I try to get with as many of you as I can over coffee and hear your thoughts. We pay close attention to what the county is saying. It requires a long obedience over several generations, which requires a steady engagement with wider society through the calling of all believers in all their lives. We have to be involved in community, all of us, every one of us. I think of uh, Walter Woronski. Walter, are you here? Are you in this room today? Yeah, he's sitting right back there. Uh, my favorite, of course, he's the only one I know up here, but he's still my favorite, uh, plumbing HVAC guy. Anything goes wrong with any of that side of my house, I just pick up the phone and call that guy. All right, and I think of him day after day out there fixing broken valves, heating systems that don't work, whatever it is. Um, and I think, you know, I, I wondered if he, and this is a question for all of you, 
This is how important you are. When he's out there or you're out there doing your thing, whatever it is, it could be as simple as fixing a broken valve that you just brought glory to the Lord and you brought happiness to someone else. Mark and I laugh. We get all the glory in the world. It's just oozing out of our pores because of you because we're up here with a microphone. And we're talking to you and we say great things and you think we walk on water. Most of you think we walk on water. Nancy doesn't. (laughs) And the truth is, who has the more important role in the kingdom? Us, because we help you learn how to live life, or you, because you're out there doing it? It's you. You're the ones on the... I try to do my part on the front line, but you're the ones, all of you out there, you're an army of the Lord bringing glory to Him by being faithful. You may not even be aware of it, but you are reflecting His glory every time you live out your faith in real ways. It doesn't matter what you're doing. That's what he talks talking about here. It requires a steady engagement with wider society, that's our county, through the calling of all of you in your lives. It requires strong, stable lives lived in common, which requires a vibrant, worshiping, teaching, and fellowshipping community. That's what we're trying to create here which requires a faith that is true to Jesus above all rival claims. Anybody that pretends to be to claim, a pretender to the throne, such as personal lifestyle. You ready for this one? Political party. I don't care what your political party is. Economic imperatives. Entertainment fashions, searching after wealth. We could just make this list on and on and on, couldn't we? We could just make it go on and on and on. That's what is required. That's what is required for us not to be assimilated into culture because we have a true God who we serve and we help each other stay faithful to the course and we're not lured away. Now, we're going to read the letter to Pergamum in Revelation. Last week, we read Smyrna. Let me tell you a little bit about Pergamum before we open this up and read it. Pergamum was one of the three great cities, Ephesus, Smyrna, who we talked about in Pergamum, all on the western coast of uh, Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey, on the agency. All were very significant cities. Pergamum was the home of the regional Roman governor, actually, Uh, It's a very big, large, powerful city, uh, like the other two cities, a home of the imperial cult. So they had several temples to the emperors and the gods there. And you have this little church struggling in the middle of that, trying to survive. We don't know what it's like, do we, to, uh, to have pressure put on us to worship, bow down and worship another god. Our gods are very seductive. Wealth. I should say greed, right? Wanting a little bit more. How much? Just a little bit. Okay, just a little tiny bit. Right? That's what our gods are. Maybe, ooh, nobody will know. Let me take a look. Who's going to catch me? Right? Our gods are seductive. We don't know what it's like to have a temple right here. 
that if we don't bow down and worship, we may lose our lives. We have the same dynamic, but in a different way. Pergamum was like that, large city. The, uh, it was on an Acropolis. That's a high hill, kind of flat. that You could see it for miles around in all directions. It was a city that was up high. And at the very highest point was the Pergamum Temple, which they had the altar to Zeus, the god of gods. You can still see this altar, by the way. It's in the uh, Pergamum Museum in Berlin. If you ever get a chance to go there, it's worth it. Nancy and I have been there. It's, it's fascinating. It is massive. And what they've done is they rebuilt the whole temple the way it would have been. And through archaeology, they've taken all of the statuettes and the reliefs and everything, and the gods, and they've put them where they would have gone so you can actually stand there and look at it and see it in real life. It's the highest place for miles around that you could see the altar to Zeus. You see, Zeus is the god of gods in Greek and Roman uh, theology, in philosophy. Zeus was the top. And so they put him up there. They had uh, emperors. They had uh, emperor worship, so they had uh, temples to the emperors as well as that. So now I'm going to read to you the letter. It's in Revelation chapter 2, and see what we might learn about this whole idea about cultural uh, assimilation. This is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church of Pergamum, write these words. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Okay, pause. In verse 16 of chapter 1, he just says, he's talking about Jesus. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. So Jesus starts the letter saying, these are the words of me the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword, don't mess with me. That's a way of saying, I have absolute power. And he does. So that's the beginning. He gets their attention real quick. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, just picture the city up high with the highest point being the altar to Zeus, the god of gods. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. I see it. God is very aware of what's going on in your life. He knows what gods are distracting you. He knows what is luring you away, in other words. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives don't know the full story behind Antipas. There's several different versions of it, but they have some things in common. Number one is he was, uh, he was executed for his faith. He did something that stood out for his faith. And uh, according to tradition, don't know if this is true, but according to tradition, they would take a bull, a bronze bull, and they put him inside of the bull and sealed it up and light a fire under it so it slowly burns him to death. And when he starts yelling and screaming, it comes out through the nose of the bull and makes it sound like a bull. And the people would laugh at that. And what he did was at the very end, he's praying for the city. He's praying for the city. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. So some of the church is holding steadfast, but some of the others have problems. There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Now this is a reference back to Numbers. Numbers chapters 24 through 31. 
You may remember the story. Balak was the king of the Moabites. And so he's going to war against the Israelites. And so in keeping with that day, they went and looked for a rental prophet. That's Balaam. There was a prophet in the area that says, bring him here. I want to pay him. So Balaam, I'm going to pay you money. And I want you to curse the Israelites and I want you to bless us. And Balaam says, well, okay, but uh, you can pay me the money, but I'll have to say whatever I hear. So he puts them on a mountain. So he can see everybody. He says, oh, great, curse the Israelites. And out comes a blessing on the Israelites and curses the Moabites. And Balak says, whoa, 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 that's not what I paid you for. And he goes, I told you I have to say what I'm told. Okay, come over to this side of the mountain. All right, now do it. So over here, he blesses the Israelites. No, 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 no. Here, go over to this side of the mountain. He blesses the Israelites. Okay, let's go to this side. This happens like he has seven different oracles. Every time, it's favorable toward the Israelites. Of course, they win the battle. But Balaam does something else. You see, he wants his money. He wants to get paid, and he didn't really deliver on what he was hired to do. So he suggests a subversive alternative idea. Get your women to go out and seduce the Israelite men in the army. That's how you can win. And that's what happened. Pretty soon you have sexual immorality going on all around the army, and Numbers tells us that the men even turned to um, uh, Baal and began worshiping their God. <clears throat> they got lured away, cultural assimilation. They look more like the Moabites than they do the Israelites. And that's what he's talking about here. If you go on to read chapter 31, it's a brutal chapter. Moses gets really angry, obviously. They still win the battle, and Moses has them go back and says, kill all those women that did that, did that because uh, they knew better. And he goes back and has them execute them all. Uh, it's a different world than we live in today, a brutal world. But they did. There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, the king, to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. That's you. That's what he's saying to this church. You're being enticed away. Is it the food offered to idols that's the problem, eating it? No. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians and in Romans. He addresses that. That's not the issue. It's only an issue if your heart goes with it. It's not the fact that you're eating food offered to idols, but if you believe in that idol, then it becomes an act of worship before that God, that pagan God, and that's a problem. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the uh, Nicolaitans. We talked about that two weeks ago. We don't know, really know who the Nicolaitans were. Other than that, we know they're in partnership in this whole seduction scheme, whatever it is. So here's a church in this large city where there's a lot of pressure to bow the knee to Zeus, the emperor, and they're under stress. And they're, it's easier to assimilate into culture and not look like a Christian, isn't it? Isn't that easier? It's easy not to tell people that you're a Christian. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Repent. That's his very next word. Repent. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. This is a strong warning. Let's not be lured away from the truth of the gospel and the core message of Jesus and God's love for this broken world. Let's don't do it. Whatever it costs us.
Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Okay, this is archaic foreign language to us. We don't even know what it means, most of us, right? I had to do some research to figure out what in the world is he talking about here. This is language that's not part of our normal vocabulary. It's not the world we live in. Okay, the first of all, he's talking about the hidden manna. Now, you know the story of the manna during the Exodus that God provided for all of their needs. So right off the bat, he's saying that I will provide the nourishment that you need that you're not getting through these other things like sexual immorality. It feels like it's feeding something, but it's not. You're never satisfied. Hidden manna will actually satisfy that. And by the way, when we get to communion in just a moment, this is part of that. This is a reminder week in and week out that, as Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever is hungry, come to me. Turn to me and you'll find nourishment. That's the easy one. But then he goes on. I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name. You realize, you probably don't because I didn't know it. In Pergamum, the way they would invite you to a festival is they would give you a stone engraved with an invitation. Think of all the festivals and feasts to the imperial, uh, to the imperial religions, all the different things. And he said, I will give you a stone to the true, the true uh, supper of the Lamb, the marriage feast of the bridegroom. You will get a personal invitation, and it's going to have a new name written on it, only one that you know. That's how special you are. That's how priceless you are in the eyes of the kingdom, in God's eyes. You are precious. And you get your own invitation to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb and enjoy it. That's going to happen later on in Revelation. But here he's giving you the he's giving you the upfront, the attraction. Don't be lured away by this deception. Remember, one of Satan's names means deceiver. You are being deceived if you're being led astray. Don't be deceived. Money will not get you what you want. Sexual conquest will not get you what you want. Pornography will not get you what you want. You fill in the blank, whatever it is. What will get you what you want is the true manna and the true nourishment that stays focused on Jesus. And for some of us, hopefully not, prayerfully not, it might cost us our life. That's why when... If you find out you get that sentence of death and I'm sitting with you and it's happened, that's why I've asked that question, how's your faith? Is it real? Is your faith real enough to engage whatever it is God has put in front of you to engage? I asked that question of John Fisher. Lauren was here in the first service when he found out he had two weeks to live. Is your faith that real? Stay the course till the last breath and you will be given these incredible gifts from the Lord. Don't be deceived. Though many of you already have been deceived more than once, I have. And when you got to what you asked for, it wasn't what you wanted. Am I right? You already know it. Don't be deceived. 
That's his message to Pergamum. Don't be bought into the cult of Balaam and be seduced into following another God, whatever that looks like. Father, thank you. Thank you for your knowing us so well that you knew we needed a Savior. Thanks for knowing us so well that you knew we would, we would be lured away by all kinds of temptation. Thank you for knowing us so well that on the day you saved us, the day you regenerated us and gave us a new heart, even then you knew where we, the trappings would be and where we would sin and fall. Thank you for knowing us so well that you're not surprised when we do get lured away, you step in and help us. Thank you for knowing us so well that you've asked us to do the most profound thing in the world, repent. Help us to do that and to be that kind of church. In your son's name, amen.